spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with labor union organizer Daisy Pitkin about her riveting new book, On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union, which details the efforts of two women to unionize industrial laundry workers in Phoenix, Arizona. Joining us as co-host and special commentator is Jeff Grabelsky. Jeff is the Associate Director of the Worker Institute at Cornell University's School of Industrial Labor Relations, where he coordinates the Institute's Strategic Leadership Initiative. Daisy, Jeff, welcome to That Said. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm excited to be here. Same here. I appreciate the chance to join you. So today we're going to be talking about principally your wonderful new book, Daisy, On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. But I also have Jeff Grabelsky on to talk us through a lot of labor history and other aspects of labor movement politics that, that you raise in your book. So I hope to have a conversation among the three of us. So if we can, to get started, Daisy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your, your background? Sure. I grew up in rural Ohio. And I'm not from a union family, um, but there were unions around in rural Ohio where I grew up. There was a tomato cannery um, not too far away from the farm where I was raised that was union. And there was a Ford stamping plant in the next town over. In fact, one of my first jobs was, along with my brothers, bringing take-home work from the Ford stamping plant and having these little car parts that we would sand for an eighth of a cent a piece and put them back in the box and take them back to the auto plant. 
so I grew up in sort of a blue collar rural community. And then I went to college at McAllister College in the Twin Cities and became really involved in student labor activism, which is how I really sort of got a start in this in this world. Great. And Jeff, can you give us a little bit about your background as well, please? Uh, sure. I am uh, currently on the faculty of Cornell University's Worker Institute that focuses on promoting workers' rights and collective representation. I come out of the labor movement. Uh, I got involved in the labor movement in the early 1970s, having been involved in the movements of the 60s and 70s, the anti-war movement, the civil rights, and then black power movement, and got involved in the labor movement um, because I came to the conclusion that if we couldn't build a more powerful and progressive labor movement in this country, it would be exceedingly difficult to build a more just society and a fair economy. And, um, you know, I ended up uh, working and organizing in the steel industry. Uh, it's interesting, Daisy, that you're in Pittsburgh now. I was out in the Pacific Northwest. I worked uh, in the industry for three years organizing and then went through a union apprenticeship program to become a construction electrician at the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. And in my union, I got involved in both labor education work and organizing and eventually served as the national organizing director at the Building and Construction Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. And my entry into the labor movement, uh, you know, is an interesting one. My connection to labor growing up was primarily through my mom, who is a teacher and a very active member of the teachers' union. But I feel like I've had a mixed class experience because I had an opportunity to go to college. Uh, I went to the University of Michigan, uh, where I was radicalized through the work that SDS was doing. And that kind of brought me into the labor movement. In some ways, kind of similar to what you're saying, Daisy, of, uh, through your experience uh, as a student. And um, feel like I've uh, been really fortunate to be able to experience, um, you know, a range of, um, of work. Uh, through throughout my career. Yeah. I'm excited to be in conversation with you about a whole host of issues. Thanks for being here today. My pleasure. So, Daisy, you talked about school becoming the tipping point for you to join the, the labor movement and become an organizer, but tell us a little bit about your introduction to true labor organizing with the laundry workers. And we'll talk about the union fight you had, but just how did you come to, to be in Arizona organizing with the laundry workers out there? Well, interestingly, it sort of connects back to being in college and being um, connected and sort of politicized through the, you know, student labor activism that was happening in the late 90s and early 2000s. I was a part of a group called the Student Labor Action Coalition, SLAC, but we were deeply connected with United Students Against Sweatshops, and it was part of that movement of students sort of um, taking interest in the conditions under which college apparel was produced and realizing that we had some power in the situation as the people who were going to be buying or not college apparel and sort of figuring out collectively how we could bring that power to bear on an industry that was running sweatshops all around the world, right? So I was doing that kind of work in a very committed, passionate way as an undergraduate. And then when I was a senior in college in the Twin Cities, some workers at a Holiday Inn Express down the road from campus 
organized a union. And not long after they won their union election, some manager at the company called the INS, and the INS arrested seven of the housekeepers who'd been instrumental in the union fight there. And they were going to deport them. And the community really rose up in what seemed to me in this kind of magical, powerful, nearly spontaneous way. There were candlelight vigils and marches across town and rallies in front of the state capitol and all kinds of um, incredible action. And watching that, watching these workers stand up for themselves and each other, and then watching the community in turn stand up and support them really changed me as a person. It made me feel closer to a to an actual fight than anti-sweatshop work sometimes felt, which was a little more indirect. It's important work, but it's much more indirect. And I think from that moment on, I knew that I wanted to be involved in the labor movement in some way. And not long after, I started working for Unite, which is an offshoot of the legendary International Ladies Garment Workers Union um, and Act Two as well. And they had a sort of crazy experiment in mind. And the experiment was to see if it was possible to go from 0% density to a majority union industry among industrial laundry workers in Phoenix, Arizona. And the reason that the experiment was so crazy is because Phoenix at the time, and still to a degree today, is a, a deep red city in, at that time, a very deep red state in Joe Arpaio country. And industrial laundry workers in Phoenix at the time were mostly women, they still are today, and mostly Mexican and Central American immigrants. So in a community that was sort of actively hostile to this particular group of workers, we were going to see if we could organize an industry. And that's what we set out to do, and that's what we did. So let me ask each of you, before we turn on, I want to go back to the ILGWU to do a little bit of a history lesson. But before we do that, can each of you give me your thoughts about what makes a good union organizer? I know, Daisy, you've written in the book about the ability of people to have anger overcome fear. And Jeff, you've added that hope becomes an important component. So can you guys talk about this anger, fear, hope, triangle, part of the labor union organizer's job? Yeah. Jeff, do you want to go first? I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Uh, well, it's it's a big and interesting question, and, um, and I think it um, reveals, like, one of the many polarities that we need to understand and appreciate about union organizing and union activity in general. Um, and you're asking two questions, Mike. You know, one is what makes a good organizer, and the other is kind of this dynamic about hope and anger and fear. So let me start with the with the second one, and then, um, you know, maybe Daisy can jump in and also add some insights about what makes a good organizer. Um, so first of all, we're, we can reflect on that question about these emotions that are important motivators in organizing, both based on experience, the kind of experience that Daisy recounts with, with granular detail in a wonderful way in her book about the actual process of organizing, 
And then there's also been a lot of research that's been done on, you know, like what makes for an effective and successful organizing campaign. And I want to speak to that point and then defer to Daisy on the experience on the ground, which uh, I think she has a lot of to share. Um, but there, it, it, first, it's really important to keep in mind that a decision that workers make to participate in an organizing campaign is not a decision that is taken lightly. Uh, that workers understand and appreciate the power of their boss because they live with it every day. And it's the kind of choice that workers make that they agonize over because there's an enormous amount of risk involved in participating in a campaign, as Daisy demonstrates so powerfully in her book. And so there are certain preconditions that need to be met before workers will choose to participate. And the first precondition, I would argue, is dissatisfaction with their current uh, you know, experience at work. And that's where I think the issue of anger comes in, um, that that there's a feeling that, that the workers are getting ripped off, that they're being treated without the dignity and respect that they, that they want and deserve. And there has to be a sufficient level of dissatisfaction and with it a feeling of anger, um, you know, to move workers to even consider to do anything about their current conditions. Uh, but I think um, that a second precondition, and this ships, shifts from the question of anger to the question of hope, is what in, in organizing research we refer to as instrumentality. And that is workers need to come to believe that it's through union organizing that they can do something about their dissatisfaction. They have to get to the point where they feel a level of hope and confidence that they can change the circumstances that they face. And so in my mind, it's not one or the other by any means. It's not only anger and it's not only hope. I think it's both. Um, and I think, you know, this is sort of a segue to being a good organizer is one to be able to engage with workers in an empathetic way and to listen carefully to understand what it is they're dissatisfied about. But it also is the, the capacity of that organizer to demonstrate in practice that there's a way to change their current circumstances and to move beyond a sense of resignation and beyond a sense of um, very understandable fear that engaging in the campaign is worth the effort and worth the risks because they can win. And I'll, I'll come back to that question later in a historical context, but I'm, my answer to your question about is it, you know, is it anger or hope, and I'm, I would say that it's really both. Um, and on the point of anger, I think, um, you know, there's a notion of righteous focused anger that can really energize and move people. But I don't think that's enough to sustain a campaign to victory without that sense of hope. Daisy, mm -hmm. talk about this, because you write a lot about this, the ability to see a brighter future and the ability of trust that the leaders of the organizing effort understand what's at stake here. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with everything that Jeff said. I think anger is a place where workers often begin a fight. Anger is the thing, or dissatisfaction, I think you said, with the current state of affairs at, at their job, is often what gets workers to come to that first organizing committee meeting or that first union meeting. And the first union meeting, in my experience, on the ground is often a lot of airing of grievances and talking about the issues at work and getting angry together in a collective space and then figuring out that you can channel that anger into a plan to make change 
and that plan sort of takes the shape of a union, right? But I also agree that anger is not enough to sustain a fight, especially not a fight as long as the one that I write about in my book, which went on for years. If all workers feel is anger, they're going to burn out. Anger is not a a self-sustaining emotion. And so therein lies the hope, right? That workers start to have hope and are able to envision another way uh, for things to be. And they start to build that vision together through collective action and through conversation with each other and start to believe in that vision. And that's what ends up sustaining the fight. But I want to introduce sort of the, and Jeff, I'm curious to know what you think about this too. I write a lot in my book about anger and hope, but then also about care and the role that care and solidarity and mutual aid and love sometimes play in a union fight. That what happens during a campaign often is, you know, that first organizing committee meeting, there's a lot of anger and it propels people into a fight. But by the third or fourth organizing committee meeting, you know, you have a potluck going on and the kids are in the corner doing some sort of craft together and people are laughing and someone's cousin's mariachi band comes and plays at the committee meeting. And there's a there's a community being built. There's a union being built. And that is built on sort of trust and solidarity. And that's a form of care. And once that, once that organization is built, once that network is built and it's built around a deep kind of solidarity, the union exists. Sort of whatever happens in the campaign, whatever pressure the boss is able to bring to bear on that union, it already exists. And once it exists, the fight that workers are undertaking is no longer really a fight against the company or against their boss, or against the things that they want to have change at work, the fight becomes to protect this union that they've already built, right? And I'm always interested to see that moment in a campaign, because I often think when we make the switch from anger into that form of care, that's when we know we're going to win, or that's when we know workers have a union, whether or not they win recognition for that union legally for the, through the NLRB or some other means, right? And I'm interested often in thinking about the campaign work as an organizer. What is it often, I think, and as a new organizer, I thought my job is to win this campaign, right? To lead these workers through a process to win their campaign. And now on, my, on the work that I'm doing now, I try to balance my thinking about my role between what does it take to win the campaign and what kind of union are we building along the way? Are we taking time to allow the union to sort of be built inside the movement of resistance that, we are, that we're forging, that we're helping to guide workers through? Because I think it takes, that's part of what it takes to be a good organizer. Because at the end of the day, it matters what kind of union workers have built together, whether or not they win the campaign. Jeff, what do you well, think? I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I really dig what you're saying, um, Daisy. I haven't thought about that in relation to care, per se. But um, but the essence of what you're saying, I think, is uh, essentially true and essential to the success of organizing in the long run. And I think about that 
at least in two different ways. Um, one, um, one of the most typical ways that employers resist union campaigns, and we should, you know, say, and we we can talk more about it. And I think um, Daisy just demonstrates how clear this is in her book that it, well-resourced employers who are determined to fight a union uh, can be ruthless and can be very successful in preventing workers from exercising their supposedly legal protected right to organize. And among the most effective ways that employers resist unionization is to portray the union as an outside third party. That is, we don't need this outside organization to come in and get in the way of this family that we have here. And to the extent that employers can successfully portray the union as an outside third party, to that extent, it is exceedingly difficult to win that campaign. And so on a purely practical level, I think what Daisy is saying is, is true and important, and that is that workers need to experience in the real world, not that the union is some outside party coming in to save the day, but that they, in fact, are the union. And so the process that Daisy has described of bringing workers together, of developing a sense of community, of acting together and connecting with one another in a deep and caring way, I think is precisely the process by which workers begin to understand and believe that they are the union. And I think that that's essential, ultimately, for success in the campaign. I'm talking about that in a purely practical way. But on a deeper level... Um, what I appreciate about what you're saying, Daisy, is that um, building a union, creating a union, is about is about building and creating a beloved community. And um, to the extent that the organizing campaign experience helps build that community, a beloved community, uh, to that extent, you're building an organization that is both sustainable and worthy of the sacrifices that people make in order to build and sustain that community. And um, indulge me for a moment, Michael, this may be like a, a leap out into another space, but it's connected to what Daisy is saying. One of my favorite quotes from Che Guevara is, let me say at the risk of seeming ridiculous that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. And I think that that applies to, the, to what is, you know, a potentially revolutionary act of workers organizing a union creating a beloved community that it is driven by love. So that's a long response to what you're saying, Daisy. I think that that um, is true. It's very complicated by other dynamics in the labor movement we can get to, but I think at its heart, I agree with you. All right. Well, I want to talk about Daisy's experience sort of at a more granular level in her organizing, because these topics that we're talking about, care, love, community, worker-driven, upward development are all important, and I want to get to them. But I'd like, because Daisy, you spend a lot of really interesting page time in the book talking about the history of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union and the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. And Jeff, I know that you have written that there has never been an explosive growth in union membership outside of the context of a broad social movement, that while good campaign fundamentals are important for success, they are not enough to achieve dynamic growth. And I think that the the ILGWU and the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire 
are sort of examples of union creation in the context of a social movement. So I'd like to talk a bit about that if you guys would indulge me. But I have to say two things by way of transparency. The first is my maternal grandfather, Abraham Leventhal, was a labor lawyer in Brooklyn, labor union lawyer in Brooklyn. And his sister, Mary, died, burned to death in the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire when she went back in to try to alert other women to the fact that the fire was going on. On my paternal side, my grandfather, Samuel Selden, along with David Dubinsky, organized the ILGWU. My grandfather, I believe, had responsibility for Brooklyn, working alongside Fania Cohen in Local 41. But I know when he died very young, Dubinsky eulogized him and talked about how critical he was to the growth of the ILGWU. So I've got a lot of ILGWU and um, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in me. So I wanted to be transparent so that if you say something and I object, you'll know that it's probably more emotional than rational. So why don't you guys you know, talk a little bit about the ILGW, because it's a great example of what you've been talking about, I think, in a historic sense. Mm-hmm. So Daisy, wow, you want to would... begin? Sure. Um, I really appreciate knowing your deep connection to this history that, that I write about. I don't have a, a family connection to it. Um, and you'll see as I talk about this, I, you know, I write in the book about how it's difficult for me to talk about that fire without getting choked up. It's still true today. Still, every time I speak about it, it's a, it's kind of, um, it's an emotional thing for me, which I still, I write about it in the book because I'm interested in that fact. Um, but I also, I write about that history, those two events, the uprising of the 20,000 and then the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, because they were important in um, the founding of the union that I worked for. And unions are, uh, in my experience, very keen on talking about their own history. Um, As a new organizer, I learned to tell the story of the uprising of the 20,000 and the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire And I have told that story many dozens of times. I don't know how many times. But but I'm asking you as well to tell it in a maybe a little shortened form, but to tell our listening audience that which you've told uh, numerous times before. So what what I what I write in the book is interesting to me because I learned one form of the story and I'll tell that form of the story. And then as I started researching for the book, of course, I dug into the story and its many layers and found out that there's much more to the story, of course, than the sort of highlights reel that I learned how to tell as a new organizer, right? So the story that I learned to tell um, was that, you know, in the early, in, in 1911, there was a fire that happened in one of the largest shirtwaist factories in New York City. It was called the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Workers were locked in to the factory, mostly because um, they were, the employer was worried that they were stealing bits of fabric and thread. And so they were locked in during working hours, and a fire broke out. And workers were trapped inside, and 146 of them, mostly 
teenage girls uh, died. Um, and they died in the fire, and they died jumping out of the windows of the eighth and ninth stories of the building onto the sidewalk to escape the fire. And the way that I first learned the story, I learned that the fire happened, and then that there was an uprising. Um, and there was an uprising, and shirtwaist strikers went on on strike. Um, and of course, I kind of during my tenure as an organizer learned that it the events didn't happen in that order. In fact, they happened in in the reverse order. That there was an uprising, um, and the story that I learned to tell about the uprising is that. There was a young sort of anonymous worker named Clara Lemlich who was hoisted up onto the stage during a union meeting, and she called for a general strike. And the next day, 20,000 workers followed her into the street, and that was sort of the genesis story or the origin story of the, the union that I worked for. And the more I told that story, which, you know, the telling of historical events as a union organizer, it becomes kind of ritualistic. You tell you tell the story over and over, and the stories are meant to sort of evoke a certain response from the group of workers who to whom you're telling the story. And the more I told that story, the more interested I became in thinking about what emotion is this story or the telling of it in this way meant to evoke from this group of workers? What What emotion is it supposed to but is it supposed to be inspirational? Are workers supposed to envision themselves as Clara Lemlich? Like, maybe someday I will get up onto a stage and call for a general strike and 20,000 people will follow me into the street. Um, I don't think it is inspirational in that way. I think it's uh, the way we tell it, it's such an irreplicable moment of courage or perhaps even luck that decontextualized from the deep work of organizing that Clara Lemlich was actually engaged in for years before she got up on that stage at Cooper Union, decontextualized from all of that work, it's not, it, do, it tends not to be an inspirational story in my mind. And it actually does a disservice to the union that we are trying to build to the workers to whom we're telling the story, right? Because what the truth is that Clara Lemlich was not an anonymous wisp of a girl. She was an incredible worker leader who had helped to organize strike committees at hundreds of garment shops across New York City and had actually been on strike for many weeks before that meeting happened and was hoisted up onto the stage at Cooper Union. Most of the people there knew very well who she was. She was not anonymous. And they knew that she was going to call for a general strike, right? And digging into the history in that way and thinking about how important that context is to the work of organizing, to the work of union building, I wanted to tell the story in the book in a way that recontextualized it in some way. As a non-historian, someone who's not trained in historical research, I wanted to tell the story in a different kind of way from the one that I had learned to tell as an organizer. Mm. Jeff, do you want to, well, okay, let me just say before Jeff enters that the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company that locked these poor women into the building, Isaac Harris and Max Blank, were put on trial for manslaughter and found not guilty 
after only two hours of deliberations because there was insufficient evidence that the defendants, the owners, knew the doors were locked, which to me is stunning. It reminds me of the, the trials of white supremacists who murder black civil rights activists and go before an all-white jury in the South, and two hours later they found insufficient evidence of you know, criminal intent. But that was the outcome of that trial. So there is an anger element when you hear the whole story that I think can be built upon. Not to disagree with you, I agree with you, but there is that aspect to this triangle shirt with fire. And Jeff, it leads into the notion that this triangle shirt with fire and the International Aids Government Workers Union really became part of, was a movement. It wasn't an isolated, it wasn't Norma Ray, it wasn't Sally Fields getting on the table. There was a social movement being built at this time, uh, perhaps the greatest moment in labor union history that I'm, I'm familiar with. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that too. Well, let me say a, f- a few things uh, that come to mind, both in listening to what Daisy just shared and reflecting on her book. Um, two of the many things that I appreciated about your book, Daisy, are one, the way that you connected a you know, relatively recent contemporary labor struggle, the organizing campaign you were involved in, with a broader um, story about labor history. And I just think that that's really important to contextualize the work that's being done today with the work that's being done and has been done over many years. And I think also just in recounting this particular story, I think you very effectively recenter women in the story of labor history, which is often told through the perspective of men. And those, I, I think those are two important contributions. I don't think I have more to add specifically about the, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire because I think you've shared, you know, uh, the story well now and very powerfully in your book, and there's other places where people can learn about it. But I think that you made a point um, that's an important one about social movements and what I would describe as kind of inflection points in our history. Because, uh, you, you know, your description of Claire's work reminds me of the work of Rosa Parks sitting down in a bus as if that was this spontaneous moment that, you know, triggered the Montgomery bus boycott when, in fact, she was a well-trained, very strategic and effective organizer who did a particular thing at a particular moment that was particularly powerful that contributed this kind of inflection point. Um, and so I want to talk about that a little bit more uh, in relation to a different moment in history, because I think that these moments uh, provide a window that helps us understand the ways in which the labor movement has grown in the context of a movement. Uh, and, uh, and that's the great Flint sit-down strike in 1936 and 1937, And I share that story because I just got back from Flint this past weekend where we went for a memorial service for my mother-in-law who passed away in April. And uh, and my wife grew up in Flint, Michigan. And so let me very briefly tell you the story of the Flint sit-down strike because it it is another way to illuminate some of the points that Daisy is making. Um, In in 1936, a group of workers sat down in a, a Chevy plant in Flint, Michigan. Uh, And this was a strategically important plant that was part of General Motors, which at the time was the largest corporation in the world. 
It's a complicated story, but I'm going to give you the short version of it, which is that it was not a majority of workers who sat down in that plant, but it was a small and militant minority who had been organizing, who had been strategizing, and who recognized the importance of this plant in the production and, um, you know, and uh, empire uh, of General Motors. And the majority of workers were on the sidelines. And they, and they stood on the sidelines, not because they were anti-union and not because they were pro-company. They stood on the sidelines because they were making a rational choice based on fear, because they understood the power of General Motors. They lived with the power of that corporation every day of their lives, every day of their working lives. What they didn't know was whether or not the union and these organizers had a strategy that could take on the largest corporation in the world. They, they wanted to know before they jumped into the fight, this goes from the question of anger and fear to hope, was there an opportunity to actually win this fight? Whole story about how they won, but the point of the story is that when the, these Flint sit-down strikers successfully brought to its knees the largest corporation in the world and got General Motors to sign a collective bargaining agreement recognizing the union and agreeing not to have any repercussions. UAW, which had not existed a year before, was able to organize by demonstrating that it had the power and the will and the whack to take on this corporation and win. The UAW organized, catch this, 100,000 workers a month for six consecutive months. That organization became half a million strong in half a year. And in the following year, in 1937, 5 million workers participated in militant job site actions, including sit-down strikes, and 3 million workers joined the labor movement, joined unions. The point I want to make is there's a relationship between running a campaign effectively, which increases your chances of winning that campaign, and being part of a broad social movement that sweeps up into that movement, not just the workers who are being organized, but every fair-minded person who is drawn into that movement. And allow me just to share on a personal level, I and mean, I love, Michael, when you share the story of your, grand, your, your grandparents and your connection to this. Uh, my father-in-law, uh, Mort Leeson, who was a great man, died about 20 years ago. And when he was at home and dying, we discovered this medallion that had been given to him by the Flint sit-down strikers, which I have actually here just for your benefit. And it's a medallion from the UAW. It's an honor award for winning the Flint sit-down strike. And we wondered, like, what, what did our father-in-law have to do with the Flint sit-down strike? He worked at his parents' bakery, the only Jewish bakery in Flint, Michigan, and he delivered bread to the Flint sit-down strikers. Why? Because every fair-minded person in that city was drawn into this fight for justice. And that's where, when the initial question you asked, Mike, about fear, anger, hope, I think that an, a, an important element of it is vision. It's the ability to imagine a different world that's truly just. And the, the, the only point I want to make here is, while it's important to be um, skilled as an organizer, to run well-designed campaigns, and to and to capture the fundamentals of a successful campaign. 
the times that the labor movement has grown dramatically have been those times when there was a broader social movement that drew into that movement uh, people who felt like they had skin in that game. So I just think that's a really important, um, an important thing for us to think about. And when we get to a conversation about the current moment, I do believe, as Daisy has suggested uh, in her book, that there's a stirring in the land today uh, and the possibility and opportunity for that kind of explosive growth because of the development of a broader social movement. Long answer to, to your question, but um, you know, there are these moments in history, these inflection points, uh, where the floodgates open. Uh, so I would, those are I exciting. Would, no, it's great. It's great. And I, I wanted to, uh, you know, if we're adding personal notes, my grandfather, Samuel Zeldin, the one who was the ILGWU organizer, when he died, the police in New York gave him an honorary police, ba- you know, the little, it says police of New York. They give him an honorary badge because they understood that what he was doing had this broader context to it that if they succeeded in the LGWU, then perhaps working conditions for the police, which were not well-treated workers either, could succeed. So there's a uh, threads that run through all of this. But Daisy, I want to turn to your book um, in a little bit more granular. Not that this isn't talking about your book, because you raise every one of these issues in your book, which is why we're talking in this broad um, sense. But I'd like you to take us through in a little bit more granular detail, because I found it so interesting how you tried and succeeded. I'm, you know, sort of spoiling the end, but how you tried and succeeded in organizing the commercial laundry business in Arizona. So tell us, you told us a little bit, but tell us who is the commercial laundry worker, generally speaking, and then Talk us through the planning stage, the developing the contacts, the blitz, the whole sort of process that you went through, because that I found fascinating. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's old school to Jeff, but for me, it was great stuff. I'm glad it was great stuff. Yeah. So I mentioned that industrial laundry workers in Phoenix at the time tended to be immigrant women, Latinx immigrant women. And industrial laundries are you know, in some ways, I think invisible places, people don't tend to know about them, that they exist or what goes on inside of them. And I think that's an important part of this story, because these are big industrial factories that exist on the outskirts of every city and large community across the United States. And workers work on heavy machinery, and they launder linens that come from hospitals and hotels and restaurants. So every time you go to a hospital and you touch a hospital gown or a sheet, or every time you go to a restaurant that maybe has tablecloths and cloth napkins, that stuff gets put onto the back of a truck and shipped to an industrial laundry somewhere nearby. And hundreds of workers work in a large factory and they launder those linens. And the, the laundries themselves are incredibly dangerous places to work especially hospital laundries. And there's a hospital laundry sort of at the heart of the narrative in my book. It was the first laundry where I was the lead organizer on a campaign. And it was a 24-7 operation. There were three shifts, over 200 workers who worked there and kept the place going night and day around the clock. And they washed, you know, tens of thousands of pounds of soiled hospital linen every day. 
you can imagine the kinds of soil that comes wrapped in hospital sheets and surgical centers. Workers were in contact with biohazardous material, blood, urine, feces, fluids, bags, surgical tools left wrapped in sheets, body parts left over from surgeries. Um, and workers in non-union facilities especially don't often have proper personal protective equipment and they're interfacing with this material. So I say all of that just to sort of paint a picture of the, the place where this fight occurred. And it really was a fight. It took about three years to organize this laundry. The first worker I met during the sort of secret underground part of the organizing, which is before um, we moved to a public phase of the campaign, her name is Alma. And in most of the parts of the book that are about that campaign, I write in the second person to her. I was her organizer, and she was a, an amazing, charismatic, tough-as-nails uh, worker leader. And she organized not only her factory, but many others across Phoenix and across Arizona to, so that we had organized the majority of the industry there within the span of five years. But Alma helped from the first day that I met her, began helping to build a secret committee of workers that were really committed to doing the work necessary to organize that factory. So they build a committee and make a list of all of their coworkers so that we can visit them all or try to communicate with them within a short period of time, which we call the blitz. A lot of organizers, if there are any organizers listening to this, this is blitz model organizing. Not all organizing happens this way, but it's the model that we used on this campaign. And that is to say that we attempted to visit and came pretty darn close to doing it. All 220 workers in the factory within the span of 48 hours in their homes. And we have to do it in that way because that's the time period in which the sort of main management of the, of the factory is home for the weekend. So we try to contact all of the workers and talk to them about joining the union in a space where they are sort of free from the intimidation that we know they're going to face from their employer. And in this campaign, we visited a really good majority of them. They elected to join the union by signing union cards. And on Sunday night of that weekend, a large percentage of them came to the first ever union meeting for that organizing drive. And the next morning, on Monday morning, the company had called in an anti-union consultant and began holding captive audience meetings in the factory. In the span of three and a half weeks, they later admitted in court to holding over 200 captive audience meetings where they pulled workers in, in small groups to a room. They showed an anti-union video that they called Little Card Big Trouble, which um you know, featured some anonymous group of workers in a dark boardroom talking about how much trouble they'd gotten themselves into by signing union cards. And there was a whole show that the company put on in these meetings. They threatened to close the facility. They threatened to, uh, that people would have less hours, that their benefits and pay would be cut even lower than they were then, which was bottom basement. One of the managers came in and almost like clockwork at the end of these meetings and put on a show about feeling very personally affronted that workers had allowed this third party, as Jeff had said earlier, to come in and insert themselves into the family that was this industrial laundry in his way of thinking about it. 
So through, you know, there were three and a half weeks of this very intense, vicious anti-union campaigning on the part of the employer. And three and a half weeks later, when the NLRB held their union election inside the facility in the lunchroom, more workers voted no to the union than voted yes. But of course, the company had violated labor law um, and violated the rights of these workers. So the workers filed charges in the National Labor Relations Board. And then one after another after another, they went into this federal office in the very fancy part of downtown Phoenix and gave affidavits to board agents who were investigating the charges. And the board found merit in dozens of charges and brought suit against the company. And then that fall, so months later, uh, we uh, underwent an NLRB hearing in front of an administrative law judge. And the board agent tried the company in front of the judge. And then, of course, there's another waiting period when we wait for the judge to issue her decision. And her decision in this case was that the company had violated the rights of these workers so egregiously that there would never again be a fair process to determine whether or not workers wanted to have a union inside the factory. So she ordered what's called a gissel, which is a bargaining order. She told the company that they had to recognize the union and bargain with these workers outright um, without undergoing any other kind of process. But the company, of course, having millions of dollars and, you know, endless sort of resources uh, appealed the decision and that process was going to take years. And it took these workers being part of another kind of massive national campaign to get this company to agree to withdraw their appeal, but only on the grounds that the workers then had to go through a card check process. So we had to start from scratch and try to get to majority on cards again. And that is how the workers in that factory, after years of ups and downs, finally won their union. I'd like you to just, I want to back up and then Jeff, I want you to jump in. But one thing that you talk about is what you called this critical period. The critical period being the period between the blitz and the election and what the data is around success or failure um, based on how long that critical period is. That way we get to talk a little bit about the intimidation and the, the illegal activity that management's undertake to try and deny a union. So can we talk a little bit about that? And then Jeff, let's, let me, I'd like to hear what you, how you respond to Daisy's. Human Rights Watch issued a report um, based on an investigation that they did saying that if the critical period is kept to about two weeks, workers who file for a union election can win their union election about 80% of the time. If the, the timeline is extended beyond that, the rate at which the union wins those elections kind of goes down really dramatically depending on the timeline. And I'll say that to bring this to sort of a, a current moment, I'm the national field director right now on the Starbucks Workers United campaign. And what we're seeing is an average time between filing for a union election and when the election actually takes place of 38 days down from about 60 days a few months ago. So we're at 38 days, well outside of that two-week period. So there's, you know, a big window of time 
in which this company is able to bully workers and break the law and try to break the back of the union that, that they are that they are building. I have never seen in my career a timeline of two weeks or shorter from the time of filing for a union election and the election happening. And I wonder what Jeff's thoughts about that are. Have you ever seen a time time frame that short? Two weeks seem to me as unheard of. Yeah. Well, I, there's several thoughts that come to mind from um, what you're sharing. And I just want to back up for a minute because I think one of the things that's so important about your book is the granular description of the organizing process and a clear explanation of the ways in which ruthless employers are able to thwart organizing campaigns. But before I speak to that, I just want to lift up that what is also great about the book is the granular description of the work that workers perform. And I like how you said it's kind of invisible work. I think that's something that we should be thinking about at this moment coming out of the pandemic where there's all this attention on so-called essential workers whose work has been invisible for so long. So I just think that was a great choice on your part. And we can talk more about that. I mean, I'm particularly interested in work that people do. But to to kind of open, you know, pull the curtain away and say, this is what this is what an industrial laundry is like. Um, I just think it's really important for us because we go through life going to that restaurant or going to that hospital without any clear sense or appreciation of the work that people do to make, you know, whatever it is that you're enjoying there. So I think that was a really important um, contribution. But coming back to the to the um, to the organizing, um, I just think it's really important for people to understand, and that's one of the things that the book helps uh, demonstrate that our framework, our legal framework for organizing in this country, is fundamentally broken, and employers who wish to resist an organizing campaign and are well resourced make a very rational business choice to violate the law, as was in the case of this campaign that you've recounted, um, because there, there, you know, there are virtually no serious repercussions. And the point that you were just making about, uh, like, you know, the, um, the employer's pushback is such that for a worker to choose to participate in the campaign, if we're honest with the workers, we're saying, you know, we have about a 50% chance of winning this campaign in terms of winning the election, if we do everything right, that's a big struggle there. And once we win the election, all that we've won is the right to bargain. And we only have maybe a 50% chance of winning a contract because the employer will resist the campaign, will engage in all kinds of delays, as you've described. And then if you win the campaign and we're compelled to bargain, they'll engage in a, a, a whole process of delay, which means ultimately in the best case, you have 50% chance of winning the campaign. And if you win the campaign, 50% chance or less of winning a collective bargaining agreement, which means we're inviting you to participate in the campaign where you have about a one in four chance of ending up with the union and a collective bargaining agreement. So I, I just think like the starting point and what's so important about this book is to help people understand that while the National Labor Relations Act says that workers have a legally protected right to engage in concerted activity and mutual aid and protection in order to organize and engage in collective bargaining. And incidentally, the preamble to that act, which is still on the books, says that it is the policy of the federal government to promote the practice of collective bargaining, not just to be merely neutral in it. But that legal framework 
does not work for workers. And so the need, for, which you've made reference to, the need for fundamental reform to make these uh, protections real and effective uh, is really profound. And people just need to understand how difficult and challenging it is for workers ultimately to win recognition and to win a collective bargaining agreement in order to improve the the you know the their lot in life and their experience uh, on the job. We can talk more about the National Labor Relations Act. I mean, I would actually like to talk about that some more, but the book just reveals how broken the system is um, and how difficult it is to win under these current circumstances. Yeah, I couldn't agree more again. I mean, the labor law in this country is broken. And in some ways, it sort of accidentally fit in well with the history that I was writing about in the book, which happens pre-NLRA. And that is that workers today have about the same protection, I would say, functionally by labor laws they did before the NLRA existed, which is to say that today, really the best way to win a union at your workplace is through mass collective action. And the board strategy works. It takes a very long time. It doesn't often work. Companies who are well-resourced, as you say, can drive buses through the wide open loopholes that exist within labor law and delay and delay and fire workers, threaten workers. And there's no, there's little to no punishment for disobeying the law. In fact, more often than not, the only repercussion is that after a very long board process, a company that has violated the law, even severely, has to put up a notice in the workplace saying, we broke the law, and we're sorry, and we'll try not to do it again, essentially. That's the point. Yeah, let, me, let me jump in. I know you want to ask a question, Michael, but um, I think what Daisy just said, like, tease this up. The notion that an employer is required to post a notice in, in the workplace. I have a notice here. I mean, I have this on my bulletin board because this is classic. You may have never seen one quite like this. Daisy, but th in this particular case, the employer says we will not, and they run through all the things they will not do that they've already been doing, um, including uh, threaten employees with termination if they choose to engage in protected concerted activity or union activity, or listen to this, or threaten employees with physical reprisals, including shooting employees if they engage in union activity. Like this is literally a posting that an employer is required to put up on the wall, like what impact does that have in terms of taming these ruthless, law-breaking employers? And one last point, there is a multi-billion dollar industry in this country of union busters who are brought in to advise these employers on how they can resist and overcome a union organizing campaign and prevent workers from exercising supposedly legally protected activities. And to add to that quickly, I have seen the postings like that or similar to that. You know, we have a charge right now against a company for saying that they would squash workers like a bug for organizing. So you can imagine the posting that might end up coming out of the very lengthy board process. A year from now, the company might have to put up a posting saying, we will not say that we will squash workers like bugs. Or, you know, that's what it will say. But the, the fact is that the next day after they put up the posting, they could turn around and tell workers that they're going to squash them like bugs. And guess what would happen? The workers would have to file a charge. 
The charge would have to be investigated by the board. The board would have to find merit in the charge. They would have to go through hearing. And another year down the road, the company might have to put up another posting saying, this time we really promise we won't threaten to squash you like buds. There's no way out of this just sort of loop that buys the company time. And time is a white collar weapon in union organizing in the, in the span of a union. And companies know very well how to, how to use it, how to wield it as a weapon, partly because they're emboldened and coached by these, you know, multi-million dollar union avoidance firms to do that. Um, I, I just want to make two points about the National Labor Relations Act, which, is, which created the legal framework that Daisy's talking about. Uh, and, and there are two different points about it. But um, the first is very relevant to the evolution of labor law in this country. And Michael, you're the lawyer, so I'm going out on thin ice here to like say, here's the history of labor law in the United States. But from 1935 to today, what the act says is that workers have the right to engage in legally protected concerted activity. It does not outline in any detail, without any, without, with, with any specificity, what legally protected concerted activity means. That ultimately has been determined through case law. That is, workers engage in what they believe to be legally protected concerted activity. The employer then responds and punishes workers for engaging in that activity. And then those workers enter this process that Daisy has described where they file a charge at the board. And then there's a whole process to determine whether or not the employer actually violated the law. And the question becomes, was this particular form of concerted activity legally protected? Which means did the workers have access to board procedures and remedies if the employer responds in a way to intimidate workers and to discourage them from engaging that activity? The evolution of the meaning of legally protected, I would say, is this. When workers discovered tactics that worked, the case law said, I'm sorry, that's not legally protected. So, yes, workers can go out on an economic strike and the employer cannot lawfully fire them. But as Daisy pointed out, they can be permanently replaced. But you can still have access to board procedures and remedies. But slowdowns, intermittent strikes, sit downs, sick outs, these are all tactics that have been ruled unprotected by the law, and workers who engage in those tactics don't have access to board procedures or remedies. And why is that? Because those frigging tactics work. So the way the law has evolved over time is to make it more and more difficult for workers to exercise those rights and easier for employers to punish workers for engaging in concerted activity. That's point number one. I just want to make one other point point about the National Labor Relations Act, which is it opens a different conversation you may not want to pursue. But the National Labor Relations Act provided the right to organize for a very particular group of workers in this country. And that was private sector workers. It explicitly excluded public sector workers, domestic workers, agricultural workers. These were all sectors of the economy that had a high concentration of workers of color and women. And the reason why the law excluded those workers was because the Democratic Party's segregationists in the South said, we will support the passage of the National Labor Relations Act. 
as long as it excludes these workers, because if these protections are provided to black workers, immigrant workers, women, it will disrupt and threaten our system of segregation in the South. So the point I want to make is, on the one hand, it provided protection, meaningful protection, ultimately, I would say, for private sector workers, but it excluded vast parts of the working class, and in particular, those parts of the working class where workers of color and women were employed. And that's still a problem that we need to address when it comes to labor law reform. You can see, Jeff, the McKay radio decision by the Supreme Court, which, to your point, said workers could not be fired for striking, but they could be permanently replaced. Well, explain to me, Supreme Court, what the difference between being fired and permanently replaced is. It seems like a distinction without a difference. Truman, President Truman, vetoes the Taft-Hartley Act, which Congress passed essentially in response to union organizing, but Congress overrides the veto, and it creates these, what we hear today as these right-to-work states, which, to your exact point, Jeff, were championed by Jim Crow advocates as a way of preventing white and black workers from from coming together. I mean, so the whole history of it is stillborn in many ways. So, Daisy, I guess the upshot is you win, a contract is negotiated, and the union is formed, and there's greater worker protection uh, in the laundry industry nationwide. Would that be a correct summation? After three to four years of backbreaking around the clock efforts, is that where I, we are? You know, I think we can say that in union laundries today, there tends to be a well-trained health and safety committee of workers. That's one benefit of having a union in an industrial laundry. And those laundries tend to be, for that reason, they have safer working conditions because workers understand heat and chemical exposures, confined space entry, lockout, tagout, their rights to personal protective equipment that really protects them from the things that they're interfacing with or engaging with. So union laundries nationally, I would say, are are far away safer places to work than in non-union laundries. And that's an important standard to be setting. I don't think we can paint such a rosy picture as to say that this campaign raised standards industry-wide across the country. I would like to be able to claim that, but I think the union still has a lot of work to do in that respect. But it tells us as consumers, when we're in a hotel and we ask for extra towels to think about how they need to be laundered. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. To, to think of yourself as a consumer is connected to this through this chain of kind of work that tends to be invisible to real humans on the other end of it who are exposed to hazards on a daily basis in order to perform this essential work, as Jeff was saying earlier. I'm just going to throw this story in because I think it's really poignant. And a couple of months ago, I was in the lunchroom of an industrial laundry here in Pittsburgh that is represented by Workers United. And I was talking to the shop steward there, and he pointed to a banner that's hanging on the wall in the lunchroom, and it says something like, we are essential. And he said, you know, you know what that banner really means to me? Just means there was a global pandemic, but I had to get my butt to work anyway. Which I think, you know, I think the pandemic really 
and this talk about heroes and essential workers to workers who know that the work they perform is generally invisible. I think that it brought into sharp relief a lot of the sort of growing economic disparity that folks are facing. They work for companies that made record-breaking profits during the pandemic, and that those companies were able to provide hazard pay. Sometimes, you know, if in a union shop, the union helped to negotiate usually a raise for having to go to work during that time. But that benefit was given and then taken away. And the company just continued to make more and more money. It didn't break the company to be able to pay that extra money to workers, right? And and people understand what that what that means. It means that companies can pay more. They're able to pay more. They're deciding not to, to these essential workers. And I think it's really, it's creating a moment or maybe accelerating a moment that was already born through red state teacher strikes and some other things that were happening even before the pandemic. But it's given rise in an accelerated way to a groundswell of organizing that's happening across the country, sector after sector, region after region of the country. And to me, that this this moment that we're in is really inspiring and a good place to examine a bunch of the questions and ideas that I raise and try to think about in the book. So, Jeff, where are we? We see workers organizing at Starbucks. We see workers organizing at Amazon. We see teacher, mass teacher strikes. Where are we at this point in time? And hopefully, do we have reason to be optimistic? Yeah, I think that's an important and difficult to answer question. I'm fundamentally a hopeful person. Uh, and I see all of the signs that Daisy is referring to as hopeful signs. I do think that there's a stirring in the land, and I think we should we should tune into it. And I think context matters a lot. You know, we we sort of had this conversation about the history of the labor movement, and when Daisy was talking in a kind of micro way about the experience that of of workers in industrial laundries and the ways in which unionization could change their lives at least in those laundries where the union had enough power to have the kind of health and safety committees that you're referring to. That makes a difference. I just think it's important for us to think about the ways in which unionization transforms people's lives. Uh, In the period immediately after the Second World War, when over 30% of the workforce was unionized, working class living standards doubled. And now we're at this moment where the crisis of inequality, and not just inequality of income, but inequality of wealth, of power, of health, of opportunity, of access, of hope, the the crisis of inequality is becoming so profound and so um, outrageous to think about the ways in which the billionaire class has been further enriched during this pandemic, um, that I think that there's a feeling, you know, I I think about... um, like the great resignation, uh, you know, that it's like people are not um, in a position to say, yes, I am resigned to living the way I'm living today. I just think that people have had enough. And uh, there's never been a time in the last 30 plus years when the standing of unions, especially among younger workers, is higher than it is today. 60%, 65%. Uh, of young workers have a very positive view of unions. And I think that this is a moment where there's a high level of dissatisfaction, as we were talking about before, 
And there's also a growing sense of hope that acting collectively, building that caring and beloved community that Daisy talked about, um, represents, uh, you know, a, a, a moment of opportunity and great possibility for us. Uh, it's not clear what the outcome will be, but I'm totally inspired uh, by the Starbucks campaign that, that you're uh, involved in. I think there are big questions about how does that campaign build enough power to take on a corporation of that size to really be able to elevate the conditions of life and labor of workers in that industry. But it's across the, it's REI, it's Amazon, it's Starbucks, it's, you know, new media. And, um, and the point that you made also about the teacher strikes. I mean, there's a stirring in the land and it's not going to happen spontaneously. It's going to require both workers taking risks, being driven by dissatisfaction, but also hope with effective strategic um, and committed organizers and organizations to support and sustain that work. And, you know, I mean, this is like a big one to raise, but I just think that this is promising not just for workers and their lives, but potentially for democracy, which is at such grave risk today. And I think that revitalizing the labor movement is one of the most important ways that we can, um, that we can protect and preserve our democracy, however flawed it may be. But I think it's facing an existential crisis. So, yeah, I feel really hopeful about it. I love the work that you all are doing uh, on that campaign. And I think the future and the hope is in young workers who are, who are moving. Daisy, last word. I, I'm also hopeful, and I'm never the most optimistic person in the room. I'll just <laughs> admit that. Um, but working with, you know, young workers who are really committed to organizing themselves and each other and demand in some ways of this organization that they're working with, Workers United, uh, the union that's supporting this movement, demanding in some ways that the expertise and experience and skill that staff organizers and, you know, other folks in the union bring to the campaign, demanding that it be democratized as quickly as possible so that they themselves have the skill to organize the company store after store all across the country. I think what's most inspiring to me is that I can see how deeply it's going to change not just the way that we take on organizing multi-billion dollar corporations like Starbucks, Amazon, and many others, hopefully in the future, but the way it's going to change the union itself to have sort of young workers sort of flooding in, into the union with this sense of what they want their union to look like and how they want their union to feel, how they want their union to be a location for their beloved community that they're fighting to form right now. I'm just, I'm excited. I'll, I'll leave it here. I'm excited to see what happens next, not just on the Starbucks campaign, but how the Starbucks campaign can and will encourage other kinds of organizing, both among cultural workers and fast food workers, how the Amazon campaign will encourage workers to organize in other industries as well. As they say, from your lips to God's ears. Daisy and Jeff, I want to thank you both. Thank you so much for joining us today. The book is On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union by Daisy Pitkin. A great read. I encourage everyone to get it. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Good to talk with both of you. Thank you both.
That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.